Hello, and welcome to episode number 75 of The Stages podcast, where today's guest is Bunty Turner. Tis a divided world in which we live, this creed versus that creed, highbrow versus lowbrow, and so on, ad infinitum. A major division at the present time, and one that interests us, is that the world is divided into two sections, those who have seen my fair lady, and those who haven't. This decree was the opening paragraph in the J.C. Williamson's program, heralding the arrival of the musical sensation that had captured the public consciousness around the world, Lerner and Lowe's My Fair Lady. In 1950s Australia, the original cast recording was a highly sought treasure. Families would gather at homes just to listen to the show, dreaming of a time when it would arrive in Australian theatres. Wouldn't it be lovely? Eager to replicate the productions in London and New York, Australian impresarios J.C. Williamson's imported American creatives and secured a principal cast from the UK. Williamson's had a policy at the time of preferring to cast lead players that they could bill as direct from the West End, even if unknown. Leading the original Australian company of My Fair Lady was Bunty Turner. Born in Northern Ireland, she had established herself as a singer of great skill in UK productions of Free as Air, The Dancing Years and Hansel and Gretel. The original Australian production of My Fair Lady in this country enjoyed such tremendous success that a second company was launched to tour Australian capitals and New Zealand. Bunty would play the role of Eliza Doodlittle in productions throughout Australia and South Africa. So what happened to Bunty after her run as Eliza Doodlittle finished? I discovered much at this wonderful lunch and fabulous conversation with the vivacious and joyful lady who is Bunty Turner. I imagine you would have had quite a, a lilt growing up in Ireland, did you have? No. And do you know why not? Why? The war. Right. Because I spent most of the... Well, I spent it almost entirely in Royal Air Force quarters. My father was in the Air Force professionally, not just for the war. And um, so we were stationed in Oban. Are we on air? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think it's um, great to start. Otherwise, people go into their radio persona. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. No, well, during the war, um, we were stationed in all over the place, and I think that's why my cousins speak like that. Yeah. They've got great Belfast accents, but I've avoided it. So you were out of Ireland? In, out of Ireland, right, right. In almost entirely stationed in, in those outside Ireland. Formative years when yes, you were, yes. when you were learning. learning how to speak. I adore your name, Bunty. But you well, weren't, you you weren't know, born Bunty, were you? I was born Isabella Grania. Right. Isabella Grania Fisher Turner. Everybody in our family is Fisher Turner. And um, it was Googie, Googie who Withers. said to me, yes. Because Googie got her, her name from her Googie said, her don't nanny, change didn't she? it. Don't change it. She said, if you've got a quirky name like that, people will tend to remember it more. Right. So, um, I, I was Bunty. So, when did you did you adopt Bunty as a, as a child, or was that... I don't you... ever remember being called anything else. Right, right, right. The whole family. Because Googie's name means dove or little pigeon. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah. I was very fond of that little pigeon. Yes, wasn't she? Um, now we must we must acknowledge that they're they're building next door, aren't they? Or making renovations? They're making a kitchen. A kitchen. Yes. Well, you did yours several years ago. You put a kitchen <laughs> in. 
we put a kitchen in and they've put up, they are redoing their kitchen entirely. And they are so nice. They came and apologised and everything. But that'll be the bangs that you hear. Yeah. Uh, you would have had a bit to do with Googie, I imagine, um, because John McCallum was, was running J.C. Williamson. When yes, you, when because you did I, did, I did seven auditions. I was in a musical called Free as Air with the part of Molly in London. And uh, it was doing its post-London tour on the Hyde and Wyndham circuit. Now, Free as Air was the follow-up musical to Salad Days. Days. Yes, yes, Days. Julian, Julian Slade. Slade. Oh, yeah. lovely, lovely man. Did you, get, you got to meet him? Yes. Yeah. He was there all the time because his partner in crime was actually in Free as Air. And um, when we were uh, in... Oxfordshire, my agent got in touch saying they want to go to um, an Eliza for Australia. And I went back to my dressing room and I was having a cup of tea with Michael Aldridge, who was the lead in Freer's Air. And I said, can you imagine? I mean, I've just got my foot in the door in London and they're suggesting that I go off to Australia. And he said, don't be a silly little girl. Bring your agent back now and tell her that you will audition for it. Because My Fair Lady was the hot ticket at the time. I guess, it was the hot ticket of all time. Yeah. And um, I did seven auditions. But Googie told me, before she died, that she and John wanted me from the beginning. It was the directors who were in New Zealand who were concerned about having a nobody. You know, somebody who wasn't a big name. And importing them into Australia. Um, because my understanding was J.C. Williams' belief at the time was as long as they could build someone as direct from the West End, it didn't matter whether they had a name or not. I know, but that, but that, that, I think is true because they could say direct from the West End. Because did but, anyone know Robin but, Bailey? Yes, I think so. He was quite an established actor amongst the sort of more intellectual theatre goers. I think right. yes. he may, he actually may have even toured out here with the RSC or something. He was. Marvellous actor. Yeah. I mean, really, we all learnt a lot from Robin, I think. He had his um, issues, though, during the run, yes, didn't he? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yes. What did what did um, bipolar, it bipolar. would be called now. At a time where I suppose that couldn't be diagnosed I actually such. did attack John once. John McKellen? Yes. And say, I, you, I don't think that you supported me at all. And he said, we knew nothing about it. yeah. We knew nothing at all about the condition. So was it difficult at times to perform with Robin? Yes. He was um, forgetting lines or...? No, but he once whispered his way through a performance. Well, he only got halfway then. And um, then Stuart Wagstaff replaced him at the interval. Um, there were... I mean, it's, it's the progression of manic and followed by depression. And in the manic... Things. He was astonishingly great performance because he threw caution to the winds. And, I mean, I was sometimes flabbergasted by his sort of intellectual capacity in those periods. But this one in Brisbane, it was, why can't the English teacher children how to speak? Nobody could hear it. It was sad. And yes, because Higgins is such a bombastic, eccentric man. character. Yeah. So... He was forced to retire from the show then or something and seek treatment or something? I think that happened in the end. Right. Michael Dennison took over. Right. 
Another Englishman. Another Englishman, but well-established. Mm. Um, and he really was direct from the West End, and I absolutely adored he and his wife, Dulcie Gray. And they came out, and I played a second season in Melbourne with them for about six or eight weeks. I was delighted in my research to, to see that Robin actually... He lived till about close to 80, I think, and had a succession of TV roles in and the UK. And he did, he did. Yeah. He played the, the role in, in um, was it Rumpel of the Old Bailey or something yes, like he that? He played the judge <laughs> and, and was deliciously um, clever and funny and witty and so on. Yeah. Yeah. Because I often wondered what, what happened to the man because you never heard of him again. But, but yeah, he obviously no, he got his conditioning control. I think and, so. Yeah, I continu think so. continued to work. People but, know more about it. But we're, we're jumping all over the place. <laughs> There's so much to talk about. Let's go back to Ireland. You grew up in Northern Ireland, in Belfast? In a great big old Victorian house, which was home when we were on leave, in which there was a huge attic-like, um, no, not attic-like, cathedral-like hall, a really old Victorian building which my grandparents lived in and my two maiden aunts. And nobody ever said, be quiet. And I would sing and my voice would go rise right up into the, into the sort of cathedral dome of this thing. And nobody ever said, you've got to be quiet, Bunty, ever. So you had that natural acoustic, which was... Yes, and encouragement, I think. Yeah. My mother wrote to Tyrone Guthrie, who was at that stage, um, probably the best-known director in, in, in the UK. And she had been to school with him in the north of Ireland. Wow. Tyrone Guthrie was from She was an Irishman. Ireland. Yes, yeah. from the north of Ireland. And she wrote to him and said, I have this daughter who, who's, who seems to want to sing and everything, and I don't know what to do with her. Um, this, is, this is quite different to anything we've handled ever before. So it wasn't an artistic family? There was nobody that no, sang or played an no. instrument? No, everybody painted. Um, and everybody still paints, but um, nobody, nobody sang. And Tyrone Guthrie told her to develop everything, the voice and dancing, that it was terribly important that I knew how to move and dance. And then he recommended Dawson Freer, who was the singing teacher, who took me and said, by your build, you are more suited to um, light opera than Grand Opera, which broke my heart because I wanted to play Carabino in The Marriage of Figaro. I wanted to play what's known as the trouser rolls, you know? Yeah. But it wasn't to be. So I guess it was assumed that, that opera singers, female opera singers, had to be big women. They were to, in to, those days. To support, yeah, yeah. And it was quite funny because tenors were often quite short and fat. Yes. <laughs> and so you had this silly, silly look on stage, really. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was an oral experience rather than a, a visual Absolutely. experience. Absolutely. A hand over the eyes, I think, yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, th and then, you, you know, people like Callas and... Uh, who was a great actress as well as the, as the great voice. She's one of the people, I think, of the three people that I would say had the most extraordinary star quality. Callas, Rudolf Nureyev. I'm trying to think of the third. Um, Did you ever see any of them live? Oh, absolutely. That's yeah. the point. Yeah. That's the point, because you will never, ever forget it. Right. Um... And when on, on the night I went to um, to, to, to see Rudolf dance, um, he slipped, 
And I was with a friend of his who was going to have a dinner party afterwards to which he was invited at, at his house, Charles Merlin. And Charles, also from the north of Ireland, um, said, no, 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 he's all right. I said, no, no, he is upset that he fell. And Charles said, no, 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 he's all right. And we went backstage and we knocked on the door and there it was opened by Rudolph who said, get out, get out, get out. Yeah. And that's the only time I've ever met Rudolph. Oh. Oh, he's such a perfectionist, and it, oh, it really crippled him that he had made a mistake. Yeah, couldn't bear it. So, where do you think the the urge to sing came from? It seemed to be as, I never, as natural ever as speaking. Doing I guess. anything else yeah. ever. And so, were you never watching from, films yeah. or something that? We had a very good teacher yeah, at school at at boarding school because yeah. I went to boarding school in the north of Ireland. Was that the manor so house? Directly, the manor house. Yeah. How clever you are. What a good research. Um, Van House School. And um, uh, there's now a little sort of museum room there in the Manor House, which is called Bunty Turner's Room. I've never been. Oh, wow. But I'm told that it's got memorabilia. <laughs> You'll have to make a visit one I day. Know. Yeah, yeah. I know. County Armagh. Were your parents... We had a very good, sorry, music teacher. Yes. And a very, very good um, drama teacher who I who subsequently married. I thought she was older than God. She must have been about 30. <laughs> and of course, when I, when I came to, she, she emigrated to Melbourne and married and had at, at least one child, I think two. And um, uh, Miss Crawford encouraged the, um, the, the, the drama side. And it helped that I was, I talked constantly in class because the punishment for teaching, for talking constantly in class was to learn 12 lines of poetry. And I can spout, I could actually do this entire interview with nothing but poetry. And slowly answered Arthur from the barge, the old order changeth, yielding place to new, and God fulfills himself in many ways, lest one good custom should corrupt the world. Comfort thyself. What comfort is in me? I've lived my life, and that which I have done may he within himself make pure. But thou, if thou shouldst never see my face again, pray for my soul. That is beautiful. Which well, you see, I can go on and on and on. Yes. I can go on and on. What, what, who was, who was the poet? What was the... That was, that was Mort Dartha. Right. Who wrote Mort Dartha? I can't remember. I can't remember. I'm either. too old. No, you're young. <laughs> you're young. You should know. My, my research didn't extend that far. So, so were your parents happy about a career in the arts? They were supportive of that or they wanted you to get a proper job? I think, no, they were wonderful. Right. They were just completely ignorant of it. Mm. I mean, the only name she could come up with was Tyrone Guthrie. Mm. And then she supported me completely. Um... And I got, um, you know, a, a scholarship. Once I had got into Dawson Free, I got a scholarship from the government in the North of Ireland to pay for my singing classes, and I supported myself by looking after other people's children. Right. Because in those days, au pairs didn't get paid. They just got their board, board and lodging. Right. So what, you were doing that in your mid to late teens, I guess? Yes, and then my father died incredibly young. Right. And I didn't want to go home at Christmas. 
And I had a cousin called High um, Edward Jenkins, and he married High Hazel, who was in Lock Up Your Daughters at the time. And so I said to High, do you think I could get a job over Christmas because I don't want to go home? Just I couldn't too, bear. I couldn't bear. It was, it was too, too sad. Too, too, too sad. Yeah. Too raw. How was your and mum coping? She said, sorry? How was your mother coping at that time? That was the awful thing. Young people don't think of themselves like that. They just think of themselves. Right. You know, I didn't think of mummy. I mean, when I look back now, of course I should have gone to support her. Mm. But instead, I went to audition for uh, a pantomime. And it was an astonishing pantomime. And I was offered a job from that. What pantomime. Was the, what was the pantomime? Do you remember? Um, it, it, it was, uh, oh gosh, I can't remember which pantomime it was, but it had Charlie Drake and Jack Edmonds in it. It was really considered... Charlie to, Drake's hysterical. Charlie Drake was absolutely wonderful and he adored me. We hear stories of those great clowns being very serious on yes. stage. Was he like that? Was he a sort of maybe a depressive even? Or? No, not at all. No? Not at all. He was absolutely enchanting. And the, um, uh... The thing was that it was in Southsea, which is just next door to Portsmouth. And my brother was at Dolphin, which is the, the submarine school in Portsmouth. So he was in the Navy as well? Yes. And he said to all his men, you will go to the pantomime. And when the principal girl comes on, you will bring the house. They never knew why. But every time I made an entrance, it was, <laughs> and it was Richard Ship's company that did it. Yes, that's a true story. I promise you. Oh, brilliant! <laughs> brilliant. So, so you had your early training is in panto. So there you go. I was in panto. The first really, I mean, apart from things that I did in Belfast, like Humperdinck's Hansel and Gretel, I played Hansel. And so you're doing some light um, opera. And uh, that's what I really loved. Yeah. And we did The Dancing Years by Ivan Novello, which is more sort of cross between musical and light opera, isn't it? And um, apart from that, my first really major professional thing was in the panto. And then I was invited to do something with Michael Blakemore, who's an Australian, called School. That must have been one of you. He must have just arrived. Well, the Your awful mother. thing was I had to ring up my mother after the opening night and say, if you want to see this, you have to come within a week. Because what we opened up we opened up to dreadful reviews. And looking back at it now, the opening number was, it's a lovely afternoon for lying in the sun. Really, everybody just went to sleep. It was dreadful to the open a musical. But from that, I went to audition for um, Free As Air and got it. So. Right. What was uh, Blakemore like as a director in those early years? Blakemore wasn't directing at all. He was acting and he would oh, say himself. Yeah, really? He would say himself that he was a poor actor, but a brilliant director. Yeah, because he became associate at the National for a long time. Well. He, was, he was lovely. Yeah, he yeah. was just lovely. Yeah. So free as uh, oh, your first professional gig before we get to free as air. Um, was there any sort of actors' union that you had to join to to oh, audition? Yes. Yeah. Oh yes, you couldn't, you couldn't, not. I mean, there, there was no question. Besides which, I'm a sort of unionist anyway. Yeah. I mean, when I became a journalist, that was a given. Yeah. Yes. And what about representation? Finding an agent. 
Well, it was pretty easy because my cousin High um, uh, was that just shared for an introduction. Phineas Parnell, yes. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. okay. that's the catch twenty-two as an actor, isn't it? Often you can't get representation until they see your work. I know, but you can't find work. But you can't until, find work yeah. until you've got an agent, yeah. and you can't. I know, I know. Um, so, what's free is there about? Freya's air was 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 about sophistication, and it was about an island. And I imagine because um, the um, Dorothy and and Julian had an island in in um, a small about place on the in the Channel Islands, and I imagine that that's where they were basing it. But it was basically about an island girl who was in love with a man, and then somebody very sophisticated came from the mainland. And she was very unsophisticated, and that was me. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but the cast were just absolutely marvellous. Who was in it? Do you remember? Michael Aldridge played, um, and then there was that marvellous song, "Let the grass grow under your feet till it grows knee deep. Let the bright day amble along." Till it ends in sleep. That was Michael's number. Oh, right. I was now, I, I had marvellous. Um, I want a man from the mainland. I want a man from the mainland. And then there was a rather nice lyrical number, which was... Oh, God, I can't sing any longer. Taru, taru, the winter seas are grey, etc. And I got anemia. And Dorothy Reynolds, who had written it with Julian Slade, she said, I know what you do for anemia. You have Guinness. <laughs> so I said, oh, really? And she said, yes, I'll take you across to the Irish pub in the Strand. And she took me across and filled me up with Guinness. And when I came on the stage, I went, Tabu, no, Tabu, no, Tabu. Oh, it was awful. I was quite drunk. Oh, dear, dear. And um, nobody minded. The company was absolutely divine. <laughs> I've always worked with lovely people. Yeah. You know, the funny thing about My Fair Lady in Australia, that nobody really talks about at all, is that it wasn't the principles. I mean, Robin Bailey was very good. And Kenneth, and Kenneth Laird came out? Absolutely also. fine. And Richard Walker played the uh, God-written role that God wrote for a nice, rounded, fat man. I'm willing to tell you. I'm waiting to tell <laughs> you. I wanted to tell you. Um, and, but the difference between our company, I feel, and any company was the dancers. Yeah. They were outside. People would come up to my dressing room door and knock on the door and so they said one of two things. One is, I, I, I've seen Julie Andrews. So my answer to that rule, so have I. And the second thing they'd say was, where did you find those dancers? I mean, they were just gobsmackingly good. And they're all Australian. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. There's a very, very high standard of dancing here. Yeah. Very and, high standard. And I believe Betty Pounder uh, Betty oversaw Pounder, the choreography there. Yeah. And me too. She made me work like a dog. Yeah. What do you remember about Betty Pounder? I loved her. She was very disciplined, very strong on discipline, but very warm, and she lived for her dancers and she lived for her company. 
you know, she really loved us all and we knew it. That's mostly what I remember. Yeah, yeah. So she was tough. She was tough. All dancing teachers, all good dancing teachers are tough. Are very tough. Very demanding. Very. It is a discipline. It's a discipline. All. Yeah, yeah. So you're in um, Freer's Air. How did the call come for my fair lady? Well, my agent rang up when I was in Oxford. No, not Oxford first. I think Liverpool, because I know that my mother came from the north, from the from Ulster to drive me because it was the only way I could go on performing in in um, Freer's Air and get to the audition in London and get back in time for the performance because there were no trains would do it. And it was um, my birthday when we got a call to say that I had won it. And the company of Freer's Air had made me a cake with congratulations written on it. And I thought that was wonderful because they didn't know I'd got it when they made the cake. Oh, wow. I know. So seven auditions. Seven auditions. Yeah, you're not allowed to do that now. Yeah. I think there's a maximum. You've got to make up your mind mm. if you are taking auditions mm. after I think about three now. That's a union ruling. Mm -hmm. It could it could be four, but I think it's three. But they're obviously searching overseas for an Eliza. I, or for a principal they cast. Were worried, no they were worried that... The, the, certainly the, the money men were more worried, worried than Googie and John. Well, My Fair Lady opened on Broadway in March 1956 and, and J.C. Williamson's acquired the Australian rights yes. at that time, but it took two years and the expenditure of the equivalent of $2 million before Good it God. debuted at the match. Good God. So On the 26th of January, in a record heat wave and there was no air conditioning. Yeah, yes. But I, I, I think after that evening, it forced J.C. Williamson's to put air conditioning in. They did. Yeah, yeah. They did. What do you remember about that opening night, other than that? I remember heat? being absolutely petrified because it was probably the worst um, uh, opening night that you could imagine because uh, while Biff Liff, who was directing us, who we absolutely adored, Sam Liff, Sam Liff or Biff, his name is. Right. Yes. He was. He assisted Moss Harbour. He came out. He Broadway. came over. He yeah. came over to represent Moss Harbour and direct our, our company. And he kept saying, "Save your voice, save your voice, Bunty, I can't hear you." So I had done rehearsals, and I wasn't experienced enough to say no. I'm saving my voice because you were so 22. I was very raspy. Yes, 22. Yeah. I was very raspy. A day on before, the a time night. before radio mics. Before radio mics, and I've very little um, mics at all. You really, I didn't speak all day. Right. I just saved my voice for during the, the During the season. During the season. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing I remember about opening night is that Googie came with a bottle of champagne. And she knocked on my door and came in and locked it immediately. And she said, we're just going to come down together with champagne. And we drank the whole bottle before we went to the party. Oh, brilliant. Googie and me. After the curtain came down. After the curtain came She down. was the most wonderful woman. Oh. She was very precious to us. I did an ideal husband with her, to with oh, John. I saw and I saw them do an ideal husband with oh, my brother right. in London. Oh, I went right. with my brother yes, to yes. see them doing yeah, yeah. doing it. That was lovely. Um, and um, there was there was a, an afternoon tea scene, and fruitcake was being used as a prop. And uh, the stage manager announced one day, "Whoever's taking the fruitcake from the fridge 
please remember it's a prop. Do not do it. And I was standing there, Googie, at the time. She said, I'm married to the producer. I'll do what I, I do like. What I, like. I, I can just hear her say it. I'll do what I like. <laughs> <laughs> um, so those, those men that you were cast with, you know, we took Michael Dennison and Robin Bailey and Kenneth Laird and, and indeed the great Stuart Wagstaff came out to, yes. to Australia to do. No, he didn't. He came he was, out he, to do... He? he came out to do... I can't remember. Guess who's coming to dinner, I think. Right. Um, and then he was in Australia when he auditioned for understudy to, to, to Robin Bailey. And played Zoltan Kapathy. And played Zoltan Kapathy. Yes. <laughs> that bad Hungarian, was yeah, he there? Yes, yeah, yes that's right. <laughs> so what were those men like? Did they treat you well? Were, were, oh, were they good to wonderfully. Yeah. I was, I, I A bit like uncles? Any... <laughs> I, d- I never had any... Yes, I think so. They were quite protective of me, I think. Um, yes. Yes, and I was just thinking how lovely it was um, when we got up to Sydney and, and, and there was Nicolina Rawson. I think I, you know... Oh, yes, you told me that earlier. Tell me that I story. So Mr. Well, McCullough I like it. I like it because it sort of brings me up to date. Because... Um, uh, Nicolina was, I think, 15 when she auditioned for My Fair Lady. And was cast in the ensemble. And was cast in the ensemble. She was a dancer and she was very good indeed. And um, she um, wanted to travel up to Brisbane and Mrs. Mrs. Um, Ralston, her mother, said, no, not unless you shared with Bunty. And she had an apartment and I said to John McCallum, well, I don't share with anybody. I just don't speak all day. I don't share an apartment um, and he said oh well, that's a sad because Nicolina won't be able to tour then so of course I relented the time changes and I have a grandchild and at the age of three Nicolina is running her own school by this time wow the academy ballet ballet school and she says at two and a half she said don't be ridiculous Bunty and then at three she said oh all right bring the child in so I brought Anya, and Anya spent the first, you know, 10 years of her dancing life, 12 years of her dancing life with Nicolina. Isn't that a wonderful and serendipity? Absolutely amazing. Yeah. My only grandchild, yeah. yes. Yeah. And she's, um, I don't, she, she's six foot, so it's unlikely that she'll be a dancer. But, um, but that's extraordinary for, for the producer to ask the leading lady to uh, to room with her. Well, but it's see, also understandable it's also, it's very much John sort of being a father figure that's and what he was. will you look after this young I girl? I mean, I yeah. suppose now it would be called paternalism. Yeah. But in those days, I, I just think we expected it. Hmm. Um, I remember that he warned me off the first man that I fell in love with in Australia, which was Athol Smith, who was a photographer. And John wrote me a letter saying that Athol is, is, has quite a reputation with women and you must be careful. And <laughs> but I absolutely adored Athol, so yes. I paid not the slightest attention, but, but, but well, it was so those days. This wouldn't happen today. No, 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 no. The absolutely. producers wouldn't cross the line like that. But I guess he was looking out for his product as well, because if you'd fallen in love <laughs> and had your mind otherwise... Then the show might have suffered. Possibly, yeah, possibly. Yeah, yeah. Did you ever cross paths with Julie Andrews or Rex Harrison? Oh, or, or I love it. Hart Julie or? Andrews. I reminded her only a couple of years ago when the Australian Opera did. She came out to do the, the 60th anniversary yes. production. And I reminded her 
because she couldn't possibly remember. But I had a photo session at Drury Lane where they pinned up, because she's about four inches taller than me, and um, pinned up her dresses and put me into Julie's dresses. And she came into the room this and she pro- said... a promotional shoot for Australia? Yes, yeah. yes. And she said, there are three things that you have to remember. Playing Eliza? Yes. Yeah. One is that Doolittle will steal the show. Really? The second is that no matter how you do the Cockney section of the performance, it'll be criticised as being not good Cockney because Cockney is clipped. Um, Two bunches of bollocks trod in the mud, a full day's wages. What are you, where are you going? That's Cockney. But you have to draw it out for the people at the back of the theatre to hear it. Absolutely. It must Two be. bunches of varlets drawed in the mud, a full day's wages. What ain't you? Look where you're going. And that, they will say, is Australian, not Cockney. But you have to do that theatrically for it to travel absolutely. across the orchestra absolutely. and hit the... That, absolutely. For, for sound of travel. I can't remember what the That's first amazing. thing... I know those are That's the two amazing. things that she said to me particularly, and both of them were true. Yeah, yeah. Both of them do little always steals the show, brings the house down with his two great numbers. Yes, and he's got about four scenes, doesn't he? And that's it. I know, I know. As I, as we always said, a part written by God, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> yeah. no, a great And the critics all said, well, apart from her cockney, which sounded much more like Australian. Yeah. And... Um, I reminded her of that when, when we met again, when she was did out she of the recall? Australian Opera. No, not at all. No, but I bet she, she found said, it oh, amusing. did I say that? She said, oh, did I say that? <laughs> well, that's certainly how she was feeling at the time. What about Rex Harrison? Or did you see him perform? In the I did see him perform, and I thought he was wonderful. Yeah, yeah. I'm biased, of course, because I loved Robin. Yeah. And I thought that he was the sort of ultimate... Yeah. And Moss Hart, did you ever have any connection? No, with nothing him? No? at all. But no. we kept I kept in touch with Biff Leif. Right. Um uh but um not, not we never met Moss Hart and he didn't come out right. of the opening. You played Eliza um in the Australian company and South African company. Yes. What were the differences between the various companies and the performers? Was there a couple well, cultural there was, differences? What, uh, yes, I, I think I can say it now. Yeah. That um you know, halfway through our run in Melbourne they decided to form a second company because they had the rights and that they would open in New Zealand and they stole half my company. And we were we were split down the middle and we were, we wept and wept and wept. And they had, um, David Oxley went out to play Higgins in New Zealand and they, as I say, they stole half our company so we never felt that we were ever quite the same again. Right, right. Uh, because they split the, they obviously wanted the experience with the new, you know. Yeah. And what um, about audiences? Was there a different yeah. perception in South Africa, or were they oh, it was just lovely. as mad for the show? It was lovely because, because the, the, the equity, the the union, the theatre union wouldn't allow you to play unless you had multicultural audiences. And um, they, they, so the African theatre said, no, they wouldn't do that. But they would have special shows for non-European people. It doesn't that sound awful It sounds today. hideous, yeah, yeah, yeah. It sounds hideous, but it was completely acceptable. Yeah. And in Durban, where you had an enormously um, prosperous, really, Indian community, 
um, when you threw, when Eliza threw Higgins slippers at him and said, there are your slippers, there, take your slippers, etc. Claws in you, cat. Absolutely. And, <laughs> and you could hear the whole audience said, oh, shame. <laughs> oh, shame. Which is a great South African saying, oh, shame. Don't you love it? When audiences get so involved. I know, I love that, it, that I love it. And you can hear it quite clearly. Yeah, yeah. You can hear it quite clearly. Um, my, the prized possession in Australia in the late 50s was the cast recording of My Fair Lady. Yes. The West on Broadway. Apparently it was amazing. And, and folk would often gather at people's houses just to listen I to it. I know, I know. It was terribly... Um, uh, you were really something if you went to New York and brought back My Fair Lady. Yeah, yeah. That was really great. And people apparently, prior to opening night, people were sending in cash and blank checks in order to secure Secure their tickets. It's That's extraordinary, yeah. isn't it? And then th- th- that a second company took off was yes. amazing. Um, you had some VIP guests see the show during the week, yeah. I think. I mean, um, on the beach Queen was Salute. filmed. Who? Queen Salute of Tonga. Oh, really? Yes. I mean, she was absolutely enormous. And I've got a lovely photograph of Queen Salute with me underneath her armpit, just... <laughs> Leaning in there. <laughs> <laughs> and On the Beach was being filmed in Melbourne. and Fred Ava Steele, Gardner. Ava Gardner and Anthony Perkins. Ava Gardner. When she was asked why it was being filmed in Melbourne, she said, because it's about the end of the world. <laughs> oh, she wasn't having a good time. <laughs> <laughs> she was astonishingly beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful. Did you meet Fred Astaire or Anthony no. Perkins? No. I didn't meet either of them. I met Ava Gardner. Um, and, and the advertisers got in on it as well. You know, on the street where you live, you'll see the elegant Rover Three Litre. <laughs> you'll always be a fair lady oh. in a bewitching merry widow bra. Oh no! Isn't that lovely? It must have captured the imagination. What I find extraordinary is that it is still being produced today because it seems to me so quite extraordinarily old-fashioned. But oh, it, it, and then a, you think, well, the tunes. It's a Cinderella story. Yes, but not because she speaks well. Right. I mean, half of Australian young people who speak at a high level would fail the test. Yeah. It's not, I don't think, um, appropriate today, but I think it's rollicking tunes. Oh, it's a great school. Beautiful school. Yeah, I'm getting married in the morning. I mean, they're marvellous. But I think we, we root for Eliza oh, to do she... well, but then celebrate her when she turns on Higgins for being such an absolutely, ass. Absolutely, absolutely. We're on and her side. And becomes the independent woman. Then. Yes. Mm. Because, of course, the awful thing is in Pygmalion, she did marry Freddie. Yes, yes. And lived in a wretched little flat above a store. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what, what, do, what do you make of the ending when she comes back and... I wash my face and hands before I come, I do. Well, it depends who's playing Higgins. Because it's open to all sorts of interpretations. All sorts of interpretations. I actually did think, with with, with, um, a a criticism of Michael Dennison was that he was far too gentle and loving to Eliza. And and that Shaw was much harder than that when he wrote Pygmalion. And that, um, and Robin, I don't, I don't know what I feel. I just feel... Um, oh yes, they lived happily ever after, didn't they? Because it's nicer. Really? What did you think? You think um, I don't know that I ever gave it a thought. I just knew that she had to go back. Yeah, yeah. 
She couldn't. I mean, the saddest, saddest scene is when she goes back and finds that actually she doesn't fit in anywhere. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, that he has really destroyed her life, mm. not... Um, I mean, that's perhaps a thoughtful... Mm. And I, I love Mrs Higgins' line of, uh, what a pretty pair you are playing with your live doll. Yes. And that's what it is. It's that's a game a, to Higgins and Pickering, it was a it? It was a bet. A bet, yeah. It was a bet. And that, that male ego yes, sort of the male to, ego. to win it. Absolutely. Yeah. So how, how, how long did you do it? You, I think you said before that. Three and a half ten, years. Ten or twelve years. No, three and a half years I did, and then about another six months in South Africa. And then I met my present husband yes. and persuaded him after much nagging to marry me. And we've been married for, gosh, 53 years. Wow. And um, he's still the love of my life. Yeah. And I was right. You were right. Yes. That's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, then I, 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 I tried to, I mean, I, I didn't consciously give up the theatre. But you can't live in the bottom of Africa and have... Oh, you could now, probably. But you couldn't then have a career. And so you finished up in South Africa in with, Cape with the Town, show. Right. In Cape Town. And um, a woman who had become a friend of mine was invited to start an English-speaking magazine for an Afrikaans firm, a Nassilana Tetskrifter, and she invited me to write a showbiz column, or not column so much as article every month. It was so successful that we became fortnightly and it became hugely successful and still is in Cape, in Cape Town. And so I interviewed anybody who was everybody, starting off with Marcel Marcel, oh. because he was visiting Cape Town at the time. And I went into a strange feeling to go into your own dressing room and interview somebody who's sitting in the chair that you sat up in front of the mirror. And so I gave him an interview instead of interviewing him. But Marcel Marceau is a very, very nice man. And I rang him up the next day and said, I'd made a complete ass of myself. Can I come back? And he said, yes. So I wrote a list of questions and I actually interviewed Marcel Marceau as my first ever. <laughs> oh, your first, your debut that interview. Was, that was my debut interview. Wow, wow. And, um, Curiously, the magazine was called Fair Lady. Did that have any connection with... None at all. It was just simply um, an advertising agency who did research and they put five names onto um, a piece of paper and asked people to identify which one they, they would buy, mm. which title they liked the best, and Fair Lady was the one they chose. You interviewed quite a number of... Um Big oh, names lovely, at the time. Lovely. Tell me about Peter Sellers. Lovely. Peter Sellers was... Peter Sellers was... Well, I, I interviewed, I have to tell you, I interviewed all the goons and there was only one who was sane and that was Harry Seacombe who promised to ring up my mother in Ireland because he was going to play in the north of Ireland. And I said, oh, my mother lives in the north of Ireland. He said, give, give 
Give me her telephone number, I'll give her a ring. And so my <laughs> mummy went to answer the telephone and somebody said, Hello, it's Harry Seacole here. And she said, Oh, shut up. And Who up. is it? <laughs> <laughs> and it was Harry Seacole. But Peter Sellers was different. He was very, very quiet. And I wrote up how quiet he was, and so I had to keep asking him to please raise his voice. And then my uh, editor went to a party at which he was manic. And she had this copy on her desk, which was my copy, saying, what a quiet and humble little gentleman this was, when he gave this manic performance at the party. Um, and... <laughs> I don't see... But, but Geoffrey would quickly remind me, I know, Geoffrey being my husband... Uh, that when he returned, he said there was only one person who would give him an interview to, and that was me. So wow. that was good. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't yeah. a complete disaster. Telly Savalas? Oh, Telly Savalas flirted with me absolutely from the moment that we met. I mean, he's a complete ladies' man, and he flirted with me outrageously, and what he didn't know was that the man taking the phot- photographs was my husband, oh. who, was, <laughs> who was hysterical with laughter in the background. And um, the one that I loved most, I think, was Anthony Quinn, um, because he was just sophisticated and gorgeous. And I remember that he played on Broadway with Laurence Olivier, and they got bored halfway through the run, and so they switched roles. And I thought that was quite something. Yeah. Um, I, loved, I loved interviewing. Glenda Jackson kept me waiting hours. Um, um, was she a difficult woman to, to interview? Um, not once you got to her. Right. But she put me off several times and then kept me waiting and so on. Um, that's part of the course. She was absolutely at the top of her career at that stage. This is before she entered politics, too. Before she went into yeah, politics, yeah. yes. And um, there was Tim Curry was playing in Rocky Horror. Tim Rice was starting out as the composer for of various musicals, various musicals, with, musicals yeah, yeah. with Andrew Lloyd Webber. Yeah. And so I was able to send um, a, a telegram to Geoffrey saying, I have interviewed Curry and Rice. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there was never an opportunity to go into television as a presenter? or I don't think I was made for television. I saw myself on television and thought I was awfully bad. Right. Um, I didn't do it. I did quite a lot of radio. I mean, you kept sane by doing radio when you were here. Um, um, and uh, But t- television, I don't think that I was made for television at all. Were, were you missing performance after, you know, a huge role like Fair well, Lady? Well, Jeffrey would say to you that I never stopped, actually. Right. <laughs> never, ever stepped off the stage. Right. And I think probably my children would agree. Right. But did you, did you harbour a, a desire to go never, back into a big show? Never, No, once you've turned a page, in my book, that's it. You yeah. Know. So did Eliza leave you exhausted or...? It left me... Before we leave, before you leave t- t- today, I will play you what my voice sounded like before. Right. I went into My Fair Lady yeah. when I was training as a classical singer. Yeah. And My Fair Lady left me with a legacy of... Nothing like as good a voice. Yeah. It was tired. Yeah, yeah. 
You're really hammering it, aren't you? You so really do, yeah. Week well, lights. I think also, you know, just you wait and read again, just you wait. That's on the chest. Yeah, yeah. And then I could have run. Up in the head. And that's all in the head. Mm. And I think that that's um, hard to keep up with eight and sometimes more shows a week. Mm-hmm. You Did you start your family in South Africa? Yes. Yeah. Yes. But you obviously didn't family. stay there. You're, you're in Australia now. We just... I th- we just we didn't care for apartheid, yeah. and when my youngest daughter said, "Oh, look at the maid over there," and it was an African woman carrying a load on her head, I said, "She isn't a maid; she's a woman." But I thought it was time. Sarah was about five. Mm. That says a lot. I thought it? it was time to leave, yeah. and um, it seemed the least jarring thing. We were taking the children from their grandparents whom they adored, Jeffrey's parents. We all did. And um, the least jarring thing was to come back to Australia. You didn't think of the UK or Ireland? I thought about them. I don't ever stop thinking about Ireland. Do you go back to Ireland much? All the time. Yeah, great. All the time. So you've got a lot of relatives there, I imagine. I have. I have. And I'm expecting one to come out a niece to come out on the 11th of November and I can't wait. Mm. I'm quite sort of family oriented. Yes. Did you continue journalism in Australia? Yes, I I accepted a job with uh, Woman's Day and then had an interview with Woman's Australian Woman's Weekend. I went to see Ita Butters and said to Ita, I've already have a job. So and she said, what are they offering you? And then she offered me more. She then did one of the most extraordinarily kind things that I've ever come across. And quite unusual in that day and age. She said, what are you doing with your, about your children? And I said, well, Belinda will have to look after Sarah. Um, I've got Belinda, it's in her first year in high school. And Sarah is in primary school. And she said, well, I tell you what, you leave at lunchtime. And I said, no, I, I can't afford that. Um, and she said, no, 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 you'll be on full pay, but you'll leave at lunchtime until you know they can manage and they're okay. Wow. And that's why I stayed for the whole of my journalistic, until I was 70, I stayed with Isa, almost until I was 70. I was about 65, I think. I was with working with Isa. Who will be an excellent chair of the ABC, I have to say. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. Bunty, can I finish off with, um, this is this is what was written in the My Fair Lady program. Oh, God. Bunty Turner, our Eliza, has a most vivacious personality. <coughs> Some temperament, too. Qualities which will stand her in good stead on the stage. Her friendly disposition should make her a popular favourite off stage, too. Her late father was a Royal Navy officer, and her earliest years were spent in Malta, where he was stationed there. Her brother also is captain of a Royal Navy submarine. The Turners are a county down family, Bunty being a trained singer and a capable pianist too, is well equipped to sustain her arduous role. Isn't that beautiful? What what do you remember about that girl? Um, That she was quite independent for that era. I mean, it's quite something to get on a liner and I came out, the, when, when I had done my seventh audition, John McCallum walked onto the stage and took both my hands and said, would you like to go by sea or air? And I said, 
I'd like to go by sea. So I found myself going on board a ship called the Himalaya and my mother came to say goodbye to me and she took a look at all the doddering old people in there, probably much younger than I am now, but they all seemed older than God. And she said, well, I don't think you're going to come to any harm on the journey at all. <laughs> but it just seemed you were going to the other side of the world. Now, I speak to my friends on Skype every Sunday in mm. Ireland. Mm. Sunday evening is, is Skyping Ireland time, and I don't do anything else. Um, and, or Skyping, and Skyping friends in London and so on, that Sunday evening. In those days, a letter took ages to arrive. And I can remember my mother writing to say, I'm so sorry that having a baby was so sore. I would love to have been with you. And I couldn't remember that it was sore having a baby because it was about six weeks past. And I was so happy with my baby that I never thought about it. Well, Bundy, um, My Fair Lady would have to be one of my top five musicals. I've been long fascinated by the history of the show in Australia. Yes. So to meet you today is an absolute treat. So well, thank Peter, you. Peter, talking to you is an absolute treat for me. Thank you. Thank you. It is such a joy to record episodes like these. History, passion, insight and fun. Bunty Turner is a delight, as you can tell, and I wish we could have seen her Eliza. Actually, some of you may have. I'd be keen to hear your memories. Drop me a line at stagespodcastpete at gmail.com. There is always something new for us to learn, so if you enjoyed this conversation, you're bound to enjoy many more from the Stages Archive. You'll find conversations with Reg Livermore and Chloe Dallimore, just to name a few, and all with fascinating tales across all stages. Find the podcast on Wooshka or in iTunes. Don't forget to subscribe so that you may receive each new episode as it drops. Take the time to rate and review the podcast and share it with your friends. I'm Peter Ayers. You've been listening to episode number 75 of Stages. Catch you next week. 